Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we are very lucky to have Dr. Philipp Stetzel as a guest. He is Assistant Professor of History at Duquesne University. Today, we will discuss his book entitled History After Hitler, A Transatlantic Enterprise. The book appeared with University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019. Hello, Philip. Welcome to the show. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So to start, I was wondering if you could discuss how your interests in the field uh, of German studies first started, and uh, maybe you could share a little bit of your professional biography with the audience. This is kind of a traditional first question for New Books interviews. Sure. Uh, I think uh, apart, from my, um, apart from my chemist father, who nevertheless had, a, had and has a very strong interest in history, um, I think I need to credit my history high school teacher, who was uh, very good. My um, I had him in my last three years of high school, and he emphasized early on that history was not about memorizing dates and names, but it was about interpretation and analyzing sources and making evidence-based claims. And so I think I got an early start how by somebody who knew how to teach history well. Um, by the time I finished high school in the late 1990s, there were also a few public debates about historical topics that captured my attention. Um, There was one in Austria, where my family's originally from, uh, about Austro-fascism and how to evaluate Chancellor Dolfus. Um, That really got my attention. There was the Goldhagen debate, of course, uh, in 1996, uh, and the debate about the Wehrmacht exhibition, which I found very interesting just because it revealed that things that historians had known for decades were not communicated a broad audience and then caught the audience a broader audience by surprise um, and so I think all these things together um, what what I found particularly interesting was sort of this intersection of history writing and politics and um, how those two are connected uh, and that's why I decided to attend uh, the University of Munich and, and, and study history great thanks Philip and to follow up I would also ask uh, that for you could share with our audience the circumstances that led you to research and write this particular book. And Philip, you and I uh, met when we were in graduate school, so I know um, that you have had a transnational intellectual journey of your own, and it seems to have some parallels with your chosen research topic. So I was wondering if you were able to talk a little bit about how your own life experiences have intersected with this book project. I think initially, this my transatlantic topic uh, was a way for me to apply for uh, for a Fulbright. I realized at some point that I, you know, really wanted to study abroad, and uh, my English was better than my French, so it had to be either the U.S. or the U.K. And um, I decided to propose a project on on the transatlantic dimension of the Fischer controversy of the nineteen sixties. And 
I ended up getting the Fulbright and I ended up working with Volker Berkan uh, at Columbia University during my Fulbright year, and uh, which was a wonderful experience uh, thanks, to, thanks to Volker. Um, and I realized as I was working on this relatively small topic of the transatlantic dimension of the Fischer controversy that my assumptions on the German-American academic interactions after World War II had been very simplistic. I had assumed that there were a few after World War II, a few uh, good Germans, a few critical German historians uh, who were up in the battle against the many bad, meaning apologists and nationalist Germans, and that they were helped, the very few good Germans, by Americans. Um, and this dichotomy, I realized, was was much too simplistic. And I realized that it might be a worthwhile thing to do to really study the entire post-war period of German-American um, academic relations or relations between those historians who, who study Germany. Uh, and after I was back in Germany uh, following my MA at Columbia, I, uh, because that PhD program didn't quite work out for me, I, was, I reapplied to the United States and I had met Konrad Jarosch, who ended up becoming my dissertation advisor. I'd met him before and I had had a good impression, which then was confirmed once I got to Chapel Hill. Uh, and so I, I think ultimately ended up with really the ideal person to advise this project. And I, I, I must confess that I had a, a moment or two where I was wondering if it was a good idea to write about a topic in which one's advisor had played such a prominent role, at least for half the period that I, <laughs> that I studied. Uh, and unfortunately, my, my, not that I had any sort of fears, but, but sort of my, my thoughts uh, proved to be unfounded because Konrad, um, you know, was always giving me sort of the intellectual freedom that I, that I wanted and, and I needed. And while he certainly, and I'm sure you know this from your own experience, while he certainly didn't hesitate to tell you very clearly when he disagreed with, <laughs> with what you said, it, ultimately he also made it clear that, you know, my dissertation was my dissertation. And, um, I, you know, I don't think there's a better compliment to pay one's advisor if, if once then one then saying, if I had to do another dissertation, I would do it with him again. I don't know if he would advise me again, but at least I, uh, I certainly had a good experience. So, um, I guess that's sort of how, how I ended up with this, with this topic. Great. Thanks so much for sharing all that. And that brings back, uh, some memories of my, my own Chapel Hill days as well. Um, so at this point, I think maybe we can uh, jump into some of the contents of this book, which I really enjoyed reading. And I particularly liked uh, the way in which you opened the book. And so you open the book with uh, two statements by two different German historians, Gerhard Ritter on the one hand, and Hans Ulrich Wehler on the other hand. Now, those of us who went to graduate school to specialize in modern German history have definitely heard of both of them. But they also play a central role in this book. So I was wondering if you could describe these men uh, and, and first describe their importance to the German historical profession, but then also explain why they're so, so significant to the book and why the, their two kind of professional biographies um, sort of frame, uh, frame the book in many ways. Yeah, uh, Gerhard Ritter was certainly immediately after World War II one of the most influential players in, in the German discipline. Uh, he's first chairman of the uh, German Historical Association after, after, World War, uh, after World War II and, um, you know, had a lot of students at the University of Freiburg. Um, so his institutional uh, importance is certainly hard to overestimate. Uh, I think he might have even had more of an influence on the, on the field had he not been such a difficult person. Uh, this is something that I that comes out very clearly in the, the correspondence that I uh, found in the, in the, the Bundesar Bundesarchiv in Koblenz, uh, that you know, he was certainly not, a, certainly not an easy person to, to work with. And I think that's something when it, comes, when it came to the Institute for Zeitgeschichte, for example, I mean, he uh, didn't have a more significant role there because um, certain people just didn't want to work with him. Uh, but he's important um, for the book because he is a prime example of the defensive post-war nationalist historiography. Um, those German historians who 
looked at emigre historians, but also foreign historians more generally, and assumed and argued that those historians lacked empathy and understanding uh, when writing German history, that ultimately those historians could not produce reliable, um, sober and objective, as Ritter put it once, works on, on German history. Um, and so this, um, this, this defensive nationalist post-war West German attitude uh, is one that, you know, was, was unfortunately quite, uh, quite widespread and, and Ritter symbolizes that. Um, Wähler, on the other hand, Hans-Ulrich Wähler, I think if one had to, if I had to name one historian who had the most profound impact on, on the discipline after 1945, I would actually say that's Hans-Ulrich Wähler. And I don't mean to say that his, you know, he's the quote-unquote better historian than, than all the others, because that's, I think, a, that would be a, a silly uh, statement. But when you sort of take his, his enormous scholarly output, you know, the many books he wrote and articles he wrote, uh, and you combine that with the many projects he launched while he was uh, a professor at the University of Bielefeld, uh, book series, uh, founding a journal, um, you know, being involved in, in so all, all, many, many enterprises, and, and being also polemicist and generating a lot of debates uh, among his colleagues. And so that really had a you know, profound impact on the field, because as much as you disliked Bela in the 1970s, you could not ignore what he was saying, you had to engage with him. Uh, and I think that that made him so influential, ultimately, in, in the field. Um, that's his significance in general. Now, as far as my book is concerned, Vela is also very, um, very much an example of uh, a generation of West German historians who came of age academically right after World War II and who experienced the United States early on, both the country and its um, academic discipline. And who developed very different attitudes toward the United States and toward the writings of American historians than the, than the Gerhard Ritter generation. So, you know, contrasting Ritter and, and Wähler just gets, a, gets really at us at, at this, this crucial shift that occurs in the post-war years, uh, moving from a nationalist defensive to an uh, open and, and, yeah, international, if, if you will, attitude. This is not to say... Um, just to make this make this clear that you know I'm, I'm writing here some sort of teleological success story that you know the West Germans arriving on the long way west to, to quote Heinrich uh, August Winkler that's uh, certainly not what I'm what I'm suggesting here um, but it's once one strain in 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 the entire book that um, is very prominent this this shift among West German historians um, but as I also discuss in history after Hitler there are many other contradicting um, developments, there are other developments that occur around the same time that really complicate this picture of um, the German-American scholarly community. Great, Philip. Thank you. for. Um, and if I could then take us into the first chapter of your book, and that's kind of putting us in the era of uh, Ritter more than it is the era of Wehler. But in the first chapter, you had this line that I thought you put, put really well. And you say that uh, that scholars came to the conclusion after 1945 that German history did not just belong to Germans anymore. And uh, this sparked the first period of transatlantic exchange in the era of Gerhard Ritter. And one of your original contributions in the book is to point out that contact with American so scholars started well before the generation of Wähler. So I was wondering, can you summarize this early relationship between the so-called traditionalist historians in Germany of the 1950s and uh, the academic establishment in the United States across the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, this, these, uh, these relations um, that, that occurred right after World War II um, could take on different forms. Sometimes they were renewals of, of earlier relationships, of earlier connections, certainly the case, in, um, certainly the case for Gerhard Ritter. Um, it also allowed, and this was... Um, one, I think, particularly interesting example um, of, of you know, transatlantic corporations that one doesn't often think of, uh, it allowed Ritter to connect with deeply conservative uh, Protestant American historians. Uh, there was a, the Archiv für Reformationsgeschichte, the Archive for Reformation Research, um, was, was, was launched or relaunched uh, after World War II as a transatlantic uh, undertaking. And Ritter was able to connect with 
um, Germanophile American historians who uh, he was ideologically very close with. He had a lot in common with. And I think we forget sometimes how, how, how deeply conservative and waspy the American historical profession was until uh, at least the end of World War II. And, and these historians that Ritter then cooperated with, they were unhappy about the fact that now after World War II, they were Catholics, Jews, African-Americans entering the profession in greater numbers. So I think this is one, one example of, of, of a transatlantic relationship that um, you know, doesn't, look so, doesn't look so good, uh, but that nevertheless was also part of this, this broader community. Um, so that's, that's the case of, of Ritter. Sometimes uh, German historians also reached out to American colleagues or to American institutions um, in hope of material support. So for example, when the Institute uh, for European History in Mainz was established, um, after World War II, um, one of their directors, uh, Martin Göring, um, no relation to Hermann, of course, uh, he wrote to the American Historical Association and um, said, you know, would you please help us um, with uh, some funds for the establishment of a library at our new institute? And he was justifying the request with the fact that now West German and American historians were engaged uh, defending the West in uh, the emerging Cold War. So this this Cold War situation really allowed um, for the formation of, of maybe unexpected ties across the Atlantic. And I think it also sort of shows that you have there's sort of a connection between or a parallel between the academic development that I detail in my book uh, with the broader political development. The fact that, you know, the Federal Republic benefits from the intensifying Cold War and is reintegrated into the international community much faster because West Germany, due to its location, becomes a crucial ally for the United States in the Cold War. Um, and so this also, and that's, I think, the last point I would like to make here, uh, this Cold War situation also and the increased American interest in, in Germany, in German history, as well as in contemporary Germany, then led to more resources being made available for faculty exchanges, for student exchanges. And this is what, got, what gets uh, Fritz Fischer to the United States for the first time in the early 1950s, uh, when he spent several months touring, um, I think, 15 or 16 different American universities across the country, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, South. Uh, and he meets you know, many, many colleagues in these, in these various, at these various institutions, uh, not just in history, but also in the social sciences. So um, all, of these, all of these developments took place, you know, as you mentioned uh, at the outset, very very early on and well before the Bielefeld sort of entered the stage as, as important historians of their own. All right, Philip, great. And so if the first chapter of your book really looks at the perspective of West German historians and the transatlantic relationship from their perspective, your second chapter introduces the post-war situation for historians in the United States. And of particular importance here, it discusses the wide influence of a cohort of emigre historians who fled Nazism and started academic careers in their adopted homeland. So I, I have some personal stories here, uh, and I'm sure many people in the field of German history do. But certainly one of the great experiences of my undergraduate years in Buffalo, New York, was when I interviewed Georg and Vilma Igers about their lives uh, as part of a senior project. And uh, Igers actually also at the University of Buffalo taught um, my late father in graduate school. He taught him, uh, had him for a couple of classes there. Um, and Igers is just one of uh, many whose lives are described uh, in this chapter of the monograph. So with so many interesting figures to choose from uh, that you uh, at least uh, touch on in this chapter, which of these well-known figures did you most enjoy researching for this book? Well, there are a few, and actually Georg Igers um, is also somebody I would include. Uh, I, I first got in touch with him when I was re doing research for my master's thesis, and uh, he was very supportive early on, um, incredibly kind and um, nice to me as a, as a, as a young student. Um, and really, I mean, I was sort of surprised of being sort of really treated like a colleague by, by him already then when I didn't even have my master's degree. And I, um, in between my year at Columbia and 
moving to Chapel Hill, I was, as I said earlier, I spent a year in Germany um, where I started my PhD at a, uh, an institution where things didn't quite work out, even though I also had a good advisor there. And that was in Bremen, um, which was close to Göttingen, where Igas and, and Wilma Igas lived uh, part of the year. And so I visited them there and uh, certainly have very fond memories of an evening with, with both of them uh, talking about history, but also a little bit uh, literature, because, of course, that's, that was the specialty of, of Wilma Igers. Um, I would also mention George Mossy, uh, whose papers show what a generous and supportive mentor he was. I mean, he really, not just his own students for whom he, he worked sort of tirelessly, but there are also many, many other historians going through his papers that received advice, letters of recommendation um, from him on a, on a regular basis. So I, it's, it's clear looking at the Mossy papers why he's so revered by his former students and by many other people in the field. Um, the, the, the last person I would like to mention is Peter Gay, who often is sort of you know, contrasted with the um, conciliatory and diplomatic and um, you know, charming Fritz Stern. And, and so Gay is sort of seen as this more combative and, and you know, slightly bitter person. And I have to say, I've, I've, I encounter Peter Gay as a really lovely, lovely um, man who, um, it's also, I think, that his memoir, My, My German Question, of all the emigre historians who wrote their memoirs, I mean, this, his is by far um, the most moving and I think also the most insightful um, in, in the, you know, when, when it comes to the question of um, the, the pain um, that, that, Nazi persecution of, of German Jews caused. Uh, and I had a very memorable lunch with him once, which coincided with my birthday, which was sort of a wonderful birthday present because um, a friend of mine uh, knew Peter Gay from the New York Public Library, uh, where Peter Gay was director for, uh, at, an, for an inst- at an institute. And so he organized for me to meet Peter Gay. And I you know, was working on my dissertation and asked him questions. And um, so that's also certainly one of my highlights of my research. Yeah, what a what a privilege it must have been to have contact with some of these these uh, figures who, for many of us, we we know who they are, but we've never never met them or don't have as strong a sense of them as people. Although I, I, a lot of them have written memoirs, and the Peter Gay one is is a particularly good one. I agree with that. If I if I may just add, uh, this is something that beyond the emigres. I mean, I I conducted also interviews with um, with 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 other historians, with both German and American. And I, I really have to say that you know I wasn't aware, of course, before I before I did it. But I really it gave me a very different but very interesting insight into the you know how our discipline works. Uh, talking to these to these people, many of whom were remarkably open uh, to uh, toward me about both you know the, their successes, but also um, what they considered lack of success or lack of recognition. And, you know, of course, when you as a graduate student you talk to somebody who is a full professor at a Research One University, and uh, that person tells you that he <laughs> he feels not properly recognized. You sort of think, well, this is uh, this is a little odd. But you know, it, what I'm trying to say here is it really it taught me a lot about you know some of our senior colleagues. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, I think uh, it sounds like a, it, it ha- had to be part of what made this such a a, a fulfilling project to, to undertake. I would imagine. Um, so yeah, if if I could. Bring us back to the uh, emigre historians, and and I guess this also involves the, the West German historians too. Uh, but the book really sheds some light on tension that seems to existed between these very famous emigre historians and their West German counterparts. And at one point, you analyze how many German academics assumed that resentment clouded the judgment of emigre historians to the point that their objectivity couldn't be trusted. And furthermore, you share your own interpretation at one point about why the ideas of Fritz Stern and George Mosse were not engaged by German historians, even though in some ways they established their own sort of Sonderweg thesis, at least from an intellectual history perspective, long before the Bielefeld School of the 1970s. So I just wanted to give you the opportunity to discuss maybe some of these transatlantic strains uh, as they existed. Yeah, I mean, when it came to the to the to the notion of of emigre resentment, uh, this is clearly something that tells us a lot about the West Germans. It tells us nothing about emigres 
themselves because the the this um, the notion of emigre resentment was was a paranoid obsession of of some uh, German historians. Gerhard Ritter again would be one of the prime examples because the the, the reality was that emigre historians, um, both of the first generation, so those who already were historians when they were forced out of Nazi Germany, and the second generation emigres who became historians in the United States, they were, you know, emigrated as, as children or teenagers. Uh, both of these generations, you see a, a broad variety of opinions on, on German history. Uh, so you have, on the one hand, of course, you know, Fritz Stanz, George Mossy's, um, you know, critical examinations of, of German cultural, intellectual traditions. Uh, but at the same time, you have somebody like Klaus Epstein, who was uh, a much more you know, I, I would, you know, I would consider him sort of a, a moderate uh, conservative historian who certainly had a lot of sympathy for for many aspects of German history. And when, uh, for example, William Shirer published his simplistic The Rise of Fall, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, um, the the most critical, really, really devastating review uh, that that came out was by by Klaus Epstein, uh, who found this found the book deeply offensive. Clemens von Klemperer, another emigre of the second generation, um, comes to mind. Uh, with very different ideas of of uh, German history than Stern and Mosse, and actually wrote a very critical review of Mosse's uh, crisis of German ideology. Uh, Joachim Remark is a lesser known um, German emigre, a specialist on World War One, um, who was an outspoken critic of Fritz Fischer. So this this notion of emigre resentment again tells us more something about the Germans, um, some German historians after World War Two, than about the emigres. Um, as far as the, the the second question or the connected question is concerned why uh, the Bielefeld School, why the German social historians didn't really engage the, the books, the ideas of Fritz Stern and George Mossy. Um, I have a different explanation than um, Stephen Ashheim uh, has advanced, uh, who you know has been very critical of the Bielefeld School for not paying attention to those intellectual and cultural histories. Um, I would say that um, if you were a German historian of, of the generation of Wähler and Kocker, um, you grew up academically in a West, in a German historical profession, where the history of ideas, uh, intellectual history, lacked the critical edge that it had in the United States. And so the the, the notion, the assumption that intellectual history was, um, you know, heuristically not too too useful in the German context of the 1950s and early 1960s was not unfounded, in my opinion. One also, I think, needs to keep in mind that uh, Wähler and Cocker belong. To generations, to a generation of historians who, um, again, came of age academically when the disciplines began to pay much more attention to the to the social sciences, not just in, in West in West Germany, but also in the United States. You know, their contemporaries were much more interested in in, in socioeconomic approaches uh, in in the social sciences than than their predecessors in the United States. So, I think there's a generational explanation that also um, comes um, comes into play here. Um, and so, while it's certainly, and I, you know, I point this out as you as you mentioned in my book, while it's I think somewhat surprising that uh, Stern and Mosse were not um, received more, that these, that these books were not received um, more intensively by by the German colleagues, I think that is the explanation I would I would venture. And you know, other German historians, other West German historians, uh, they were likely, like you know, Gerhard Ritter certainly would have been likely to ignore. A study that that critically looked at the um, at the German Bildungsbürgertum. So I think you know, looking at the different forces, the different groups of people who were active in in the West German discipline at the time, I think that explains why those books really weren't weren't um, didn't get the attention that they that they certainly deserved. Great, and then um, then you go on in the book to. Uh, a very crucial section uh, of the book, and that's where you discuss the formative experiences uh, that the next generation of German historians enjoyed in the United States. And so some of the figures you've already mentioned um, by name, such as Fritz Fischer, Hans Ulrich Wehler, Jürgen Kocke, uh, these types of people, they recall their time abroad as uh, very formative for the methodological innovations uh, they would later introduce in Germany. So could you offer our listeners an overview of some of their um, memories from their time abroad and, and 
how those memories were impactful. Yeah, I, I would I would think that uh, when you know experience you make uh, as a student uh, in a foreign country are likely to be more formative than experience you have when you go to a country uh, as an established scholar. So I think that I think is one reason why the years abroad as, as students um, why these were particularly important for the younger German historians. So Vila, for example, was one of the um, first or second generation, uh, sex, not generation, but he was one of the first or second year of, of German Fulbright students to come to the United States. And he was at um, Ohio University in, in Athens, Ohio, and um, experienced, um, just like Volker Berkan, who did a master's degree at UNC Chapel Hill in, the, um, in 1961, um, what, they, what they experienced was really a combination of a more open, less hierarchical compared to Germany, uh, academic culture. Uh, first, secondly, different curricula, the fact that, you know, rather than in Germany, uh, where the overwhelming majority of, of, of German historians, they, they taught exclusively German history. And if they, you know, were, if they were sort of exceptional, they would also teach a little bit on France or maybe England. But um, there was not sort of the broad offering that you would get in an American history department. Uh, and I think also as a result of the, the generally very different curricula, um, those young Germans were able to take courses in other disciplines that they would not have been able to take as, as German students as, as easily. Um, the last factor that certainly also was important was the hospitality they experienced off campus. Uh, Vila talks about um, in, a, in an interview volume that um, was came out on the uh, on the occasion of his 75th birthday he talks about uh the the his, his host family in, in in athens ohio that um was so nice to him that he ultimately regarded him as second parents uh klaus schwabe a diplomatic historian who is in my book he he said you know i was especially impressed by um the friendly attitude that i i encountered among german emigres who were teaching at the university where i was a student in the 1950s so i think all these things taken together um, really made such a deep impact on, on the Germans who then often came back as postdocs and then later in their careers had visiting professorships or did other exchanges. And it really sort of was the beginning of a lifelong um, connection to both the United States as a country, but also American academia. Now, regarding the methodological innovations, I think that the familiarity with, with historiography in the United States, um, also with in some, some cases, American social sciences, um, was important for the Germans, but did not directly lead to um, them using those methods in, in a German context. Uh, that is um, one of my arguments about the Bielefeld School. Uh, they often, Wille and Kocker often sort of portrayed themselves as sort of an Americanized, um, you know, as, as pursuing an Americanized form of, 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 of historiography. And uh, that really wasn't the case. I mean, if you look at the actual um, elements that um, constitute historical social science, historical socialwissenschaft. I mean, they are they are German. They're not they're not American. Um, but regardless, what certainly the case for all these people was that their their close contacts with U.S. academia um, that they they persisted throughout their careers, and uh, also those that generation um, was not really susceptible to the. Sometimes, you know, rather crude anti-Americanism that you see among, um, that you saw among the 68ers um, at the time of the Vietnam War. So they certainly were critical of, or could be critical of, of, of you know, political developments in the United States, but they never really wavered in their, in their commitment to transatlantic cooperation, both politically, but also academically. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. All right. And I think at this point, it's a good moment for me to maybe ask you to speak about what I think is one of your central contributions in the book. And your book challenges what I think is the traditional narrative about how exposure to the United States, uh, either modernized or westernized or Americanized, you, you, you spell out and flesh out the meaning of these terms in the book. But um, so how exposure to the United States modernized, westernized and Americanized the historical profession in Germany. So how does your book offer a fresh viewpoint on this topic? Um, I think it does so by saying that, yes, it's certainly true that West German historians became Western in a very general sense of you know, greater openness um, toward other quote-unquote Western countries, such as the United States, such as Great Britain or France. Um, but you know, when it comes to the Westernization, I would really, I would really leave it at that. Um, you know, the, the modernization. I mean, modern is really a, I think, problematic category when you talk about um, the development of, of academic disciplines, because you know what you consider a modern approach, a modern methodology, uh, is of course really a, a subjective question, and you see recurrence of of arguments in debates between political and social historians, and then the very the very same arguments are made um, a couple of decades later between social and cultural historians. And it's always that, you know, the new, the new movement will come and say that the, the movement they're trying to distance themselves from them, that they are, that these historians are, are narrow and traditional and old fashioned. The uh, historians who are called that, they will respond that that new movement, you know, is sort of fashionable, but really doesn't really contribute much. So, I mean, the, the developments, uh, the, the arguments that are exchanged in these debates are really uh, almost interchangeable. Um, and so what I would say with regard to the Americanization, I think that is, um, that is really a key point, I think, uh, of in, in the book is that you can see Americanization of, of West German historians at best in the sense of a selective appropriation of trends in the American historical profession, similar to how some cultural historians have talked about the selective appropriation of American popular culture in Germany. Um, but what's, what's interesting and I think what's fascinating is that the, the notion of what America, what American meant in the West German discipline really changed, had changed by the 1970s. Whereas, you know, after World War II, the Gerhard Ritters, and, you know, he was certainly not the only one for whom uh, American views of, 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 of Germany were unreliable. They couldn't be trusted. American writings on German history were always deemed deficient to some degree. Um, and often you see this in books, all this in book reviews that they would say, well, it is a you know, it is a good book. However, as an American historian, scholar such and such lacks insights and, and so on and so forth. But in the 1970s, uh, American meant, had a positive connotation for, for, the, for Vela and, and for Kocka. And, 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 and Vela was always making the claim that the West German historical profession had to catch up with the American historical profession, that West German historians had to uh, look at what American historians were doing and, and employ those things um, themselves. And, of course, his, his take on the American profession was also very selective. I mean, he sort of certainly wasn't a fan when, when uh, once American historians began to turn to Michel Foucault. I mean, he was uh, horrified by that. Um, <laughs> but again, you know, what it, what it shows is that, that um, claiming American connections by the 1970s uh, was, a, was an advantage, not a liability. And, and, you know, that gets back to the argument you mentioned earlier in the book that uh, when German historians realized that German history did not belong to them exclusively anymore, uh, that they could not exclude foreign voices. They often decided then to really co-opt um, and instrumentalize sometimes those American voices who happened to share their views. And this is not to say that, you know, transatlantic or international scholarly cooperation per se um, has always been, has, has always be, has, has to be motivated by uh, ulterior motives. 
Uh, it's just to say that you know these these transatlantic connections didn't always result from um, internationalist idealism. Sometimes they were also just looking for allies when you were engaged in a in a domestic debate with 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 German colleagues, and you had some American historians who you'd claim they, they agreed with you, and that that would be useful, and that certainly was useful by the 1970s. All right. Yeah. Thanks for that explanation. And I thought, um, so I think to outsiders, uh, the city of Bielefeld might seem to be an odd choice as a place to start an intellectual revolution of sorts in the field of German history. So how did Wehler make the university in the city so important to our field in the 70s, so much so that, you know, his way of approaching history became known as the Bielefeld school, so to speak? Um, I mean, he was able to, and of course, you know, he didn't. As, uh, he didn't do this um, by by himself. I think he was lucky in 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 some ways that he ended up uh, at Bielefeld, which was one of the so-called reform universities um, established in the late 1960s, because um, it became clear to, to to German to the German political establishment that that West Germany did not have enough institutions of higher learning. So a number of reform universities, as they were called, um, were established in the 1960s, and the Bielefeld, Bielefeld University of Bielefeld was one of them. Um, and since Wähler received a, a position at that university early on, uh, he was able to really have influence on the other appointments. So, for example, uh, he was able to, you know, not by himself, but but he certainly was was uh, played his part in getting Jürgen Kocker uh, as a very young Historian, I think he was only 32 when he joined the University of Bielefeld as a as a full professor. Um, so he was he was instrumental in getting Kocker to to Bielefeld, uh, but also to get Reinhard Koselik, who of course was pursuing a very different kind of history um, to uh, compared with Wähler and Kocker. Uh, and 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 Wähler talked about this quite openly in his correspondence, both with Theodor Schieder, who was his own doctor father, but also with Hans Rosenberg, who was a very important figure for for Wähler and for other. German historian, Sas Rosbeck, this uh, German emigre who taught first at Brooklyn College and then at, at UC Berkeley. Uh, and Vila said, you know, we really have, we, have the, we, have the, we have the chance here, we have the opportunity to assemble a team in Bielefeld of people who do interesting stuff. And that's, that was one, that was, you know, certainly one reason that he just got to a university that was new, where a lot of new, a lot of positions could be filled with, with new people. Um, the second important factor here is that the Bielefeld uh, some of the Bielefeld protagonists, and especially, again, you know, Vela and Kocker, uh, were not only very productive and stimulating historians who wrote a lot and wrote, you know, many sort of important, um, important books, but they also were extremely active otherwise. They launched numerous projects, um, book series like the Kritische Studien, Zugeschichtswissenschaft, which was a major, became a major book series for, um, for studies on on mostly German history, but not only. Uh, more importantly, even the the journal Geschichte und Gesellschaft um, that they launched in 1975. So they also did a lot to establish platforms for themselves. And again, you know, Vela is on record in letters saying, you know, it's important for us historians uh, to, if we want to get our point across to to make sure that we have the ability to do so by having you know by having a book series, by having a journal. Uh, and so I think he also recognized what you have to do to, um, you know, position yourself as an influential voice, not just you know, being a good historian, quote unquote, but also um, be aware of, of, of how you have to get yourself out there and promote yourself. So I think they succeeded on both, on both fronts. Great. And the, these uh, so-called Bielefelders, then they found themselves under attack on multiple fronts in the 1980s. Those who were once uh, the uh, the the young rebels, they were now the establishment. So, uh, who were their expected and unexpected adversaries, and how did Veller and Coco try to defend themselves against these uh, adversaries? What was I think so unsettling for for the Bielefelders was that by the by the early nineteen eighties, when they themselves had become um, part of the establishment, as you say, was that they were attacked from, criticized by uh, fellow progressives or people who consider themselves progressives. Um, they were used to engaging in, in you know, heated debates with diplomatic historians, 
uh, with 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 conservative West German historians um, who didn't like the critical historiography, the kritische Geschichtswissenschaft. Um, Bela in particular was advocating, but it was new to be attacked from the left, and this is something that, that started in the 1980s. Uh, historians of everyday life uh, criticized the uh, socioeconomic. Uh, emphasis on structures by the Bielefeld school that didn't pay attention to individual agency, that didn't pay attention to uh, ordinary people. Um, women's historians uh, pointed to blind spots um, uh, when it came when it came to the Bielefeld school. In, in that regard, uh, and 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 last but certainly not least, um, a group of British historians that challenged the Zomovic paradigm, um, and it's it's. Um, I think it's, it's really amusing to, to sort of look at book reviews uh, where, you know, conservative German historian like, like Thomas Nippadai uh, reviewing Jeff Ely's and David Blackburn's peculiarities of, of German history and say, and says, well, these British, these young British historians, they're, they're Marxists, but it's okay because they're good historians and good historians meant they're historians who agree with me that the Zondervik paradigm is, is, is fundamentally misguided. Uh, and so, <laughs> So, you know, the West German conservatives and, and Nippada was not the only one. They sort of, you know, realized, oh, yeah, we, it seems like we can also do what the Bielefelders do. We, we, we use um, historians outside of Germany who may not agree with what we write, but who are also critical of the Bielefeld School. And that will help us in our engagement with, with the Bielefeld School. Um, the Bielefelders, you know, kept insisting that American historians were. Uh, they are their partners, their allies in their "quote unquote" progressive historiographical uh, enterprise, um, but that was not reflective of reality. I mean, if it's re- it's really interesting that those historians, Bielefeld, had the closest personal connection with, um, you know, Gerald Feldman, insisting that World War One and the immediate aftermath of the war is the big cesura in in modern German history. Um, Jim Sheehan uh, having a much more sympathetic view of German liberalism than, than Vela and Kocka. Uh, so it was exactly the, the historians they were closest with who actually had different points of view. And, you know, it's not, this is not, I think, surprising. I mean, you, you know, only that having, you know, cooperating with a historian or having sort of close connections with doesn't mean you have to be in interpretive agreement. But the Bielefelder certainly portrayed themselves to be in agreement with the American historians. And because many other West German historians knew so little about the United States and about American historiography, um, they they bought that argument. Um, and this is something that still, you know, I, even when I was doing my research, uh, talking to younger German historians today, they were still surprised to hear um, that ultimately no American historians were not on board, across the board with the Bielefeld School. And so far, we've talked about the book um, from the perspective of sort of post-1945 German history and so on. But it seems to me that this is a book that would be uh, of interest to many people besides just uh, specialists in German studies. So I was wondering if you could uh, speak to some of the ways in which this study has uh, broader appeal. I think it could be or should be of interest uh, to anybody who is interested in post-war transatlantic relations because it connects the history of the academic community to broader political developments. And it shows that in many ways, the the trajectory of of the academic community um, runs parallel or in many ways is similar to uh, the broader political political relations between the two countries. Um, I think it should be of interest for any historian, regardless of what period or um, region of the world they study because it sharpens the awareness of how academic disciplines function and how certain arguments win out over others uh, and and what institutional factors play into that and what political factors uh, play into that. Um, I think it is of interest for people pursuing transnational history because it uh, proposes a a non-normative approach to uh, transnational connections. So I think often uh, historians approach transnational connections with the explicit or implicit, at least, assumption that uh, transnationalism is always something positive. Uh, it is something, you know, it's a force for the good, so to speak. And, you know, I list some examples in, in my book of, uh, you know, West German historians, you know, after 1945, some of them had really been, 
had really compromised themselves during the Nazi years, uh, but were found like-minded people on the other side of the Atlantic. So this non-normative approach to transnational connections, I think, um, is, is something that has broader appeal. Uh, also, I would say the um, it, it gets can get people or or should get people to uh, examine their own assumptions about methodological change um, and what what you know what you consider a modern or a progressive methodology uh, because I think there's there's often uh, unarticulated and unreflected assumptions that that go into people writing about methodologies um, and finally the question of empathy and understanding you know what one needs what sort of, you know, what degree of empathy and understanding, you know, Einfühlungsvermögen is the German uh, word is that I think I would translate that, like that, you know, how important that is for approaching the history of a certain, uh, of a certain area. So I think these are some ways in which uh, this is of interest, even if you're not particularly interested in um, historiography or uh, the, the, the academic, uh, the, the development of the academic community. Great. And so I think um, one of the final episodes in your book deals with an event known as the Historical Streit uh, in the 1980s. And this was this moment became a very public fight in Germany about its Third Reich history. And it would seem that Germany is in some ways in a similar period right now. You have a far-right populist party, the alternative for Germany, alternative for Deutschland, AFD, and it is promoting something of a neo-nationalist narrative of German history. So I was wondering uh, if you could talk about how historians responded in the 1980s to attempts to relativize national socialist brutality, and then what lessons can be learned as historians decide how to respond to radical right-wing narratives about history today, and not just in Germany, but it's happening in the United States and elsewhere around the world too. Yeah, I think... I would I would consider uh, the situation in 2019 in Germany different from the one in 19 in the 1980s because the attempt in the 1980s by um, the Kohl government to focus on a more identifiable history um, I would certainly see as less radical than what the AfD wants to do today um, because uh, you know Kohl Kohl's you know politics of the past certainly uh, I think you know has received justified criticism, but it doesn't come close to what the AfD uh, wants to do today. Uh, also, I think in the 1980s, um, even though even those even some of those historians who defended um, Nolte against some of Jürgen Habermas's criticisms were not always accurate, even they recognized that Nolte's, um, you know, Nolte's positions were, were just uh, unacceptable, and it brought together historians who otherwise had very different views of national socialism, like Hans Mommsen and, and Eberhard Jäckel, who had very different ideas about the role of Nazi ideology and how the how the Nazi regime functioned, but they were opposed to the apologetic uh, positions of, of Ernst Nolte. Um, one consequence of the historical Streit, and, and Ulrich Herbert has written a very good article about this, is that it really um, gave a gave a gave a push, um, gave more attention to the history of the Holocaust, which we then saw in the 1990s, and something that you know was done uh, much more so than before in, in Germany. Uh, whereas today, I would say the AfD attempts to promote this um, neo-nationalist history uh, that's directly tied to other, um, the, uh, other programmatic goals that they have uh, of, of, you know, the, the anti, this, this, this really radical anti-immigrant stance um, and many other, many other really um, horrifying goals that the AfD is is pursuing now. What can historians do? I mean, I think it's 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 really crucial and 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 for 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 historians uh, to do more. You know, I guess what what we call public facing history to just you know make uh, make sure that those things that we academic historians find out um, that we do a better job communicating that with a broader audience, so that things like you know situations like in the nineteen nineties when results of the Wehrmacht exhibition that in many ways, just reflected of what historians had known for 20 years, but had not been able to communicate to a broader audience that these things uh, don't happen again. And, you know, I just, um, this, this summer when I was in Germany, um, I happened to come across a book by uh, actually a German historian who does mostly um, 
Soviet history, Jan Plamper, who teaches in the United Kingdom, and he wrote a book uh, it's called Das Neue Wir, which was a um, you know a, a sort of a popular but a really well written book on uh, on the the contributions that immigrants have made to Germany in a in a historical suite. And I think sort of we knew, we knew, we need more of that. Um, I think what's what's difficult, uh, or what I what I find um, not just difficult, but what I find problematic, uh, are resolutions like the one put out by the German Historical Association uh, about a year ago in September of 2018. The uh, German Historical Association um, issued a resolution uh, condemning, you know, the positions of of, of the IFD and uh, and and reminding issuing a plea for a more sensitive uh, language, um, more mindful of, 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 of historical developments, but also making a case for a, for a pro-European, pro-European Union orientation. And I think professional associations shouldn't do that. I mean, I could sign off on any of the points mentioned in that resolution, uh, but I think historians need to do this individually. And when they do it collectively, they just need to organize collectively, but I don't think a professional organization should be uh, issuing these statements because it feeds exactly into the, the narrative of the right-wing populists that there's official, there's an official take on history, and anybody who doesn't get on board with that is is ostracized. And I think we must not provide fodder to these people um, by falling into that trap. Great. Um, well, at this point, Philip, I think we have taken up a lot of your time. And I'd like to end the interview today with our traditional final question at the New Books Network. And I was wondering if you could share uh, with the audience some of your current research projects or research goals. I um, have started um, thinking about and, and, and reading um, for uh, a new, a larger project, um, which is tentatively titled The Oppressed, of Oppressing the Majority. And the, what, what the project wants to do is really study the career, the trajectory of this argument, which, of course, you know, scholars of the United States um, know very well. Richard Nixon's famous speech of, uh, about the silent majority in 1969. Um, what few people know is that in West Germany, a um, professor, of communication, professor of communications made a very similar argument just a few years later. She called it the spiral of silence, uh, which in which conservative Germans found themselves in. And I'm trying to find out, you know, what makes this argument fly and, and what conditions need to exist that this argument gains momentum. Because right now, of course, and this ties in very, very closely with, with you know, with, with present concerns, uh, with present debates about the, the Lügenpresse, the lying press in, in, in West Germany, uh, in, in Germany, uh, and it, it is supposed to be a contribution to the, the to the history of populism by asking, you know, why is this argument, why is it becoming influential? Is it tied to socioeconomic developments? Is it tied to cultural change? What is what is it that makes this argument um, so successful? And also, I'm, what I'm trying to figure out: why is this argument that there's a, a majority out there, which of course is you know a fictional majority, but the majority out there whose voices are supposedly silenced? Um, why is that argument developed by conservatives? Because at face value, I mean, this would be, this is a politically neutral argument. But historically, you've always seen this uh, as an argument that's articulated by, um, by the right. And I'm trying to figure out why that is. Well, that sounds, uh, that sounds interesting. Sounds like another foray into the intellectual and political history of transatlantic history as well. And I think uh, if you uh, see the project through to a book, maybe you could come back on New Books in German Studies someday to talk about it as well. That'd be wonderful. All right. Well, thanks so much for giving us your time today, Philip. And thanks for being on the show. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Mike. Great. So uh, you have been listening to an episode in New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guest today was Dr. Philip Stetzel. We discussed his recent book, History After Hitler, A Transatlantic Enterprise, published with the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and we hope that you will continue to listen.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.